Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. morning and happy Lord's Day to you. My name is Joel Rainey. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church and we welcome you from wherever you are right now who've chosen to join us online. We welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ on this rather unusual Palm Sunday worship service, but I'm glad you've chosen to join us. If you're new here, we'd love for you to reach out and let us know that you're here. We have an email uh, that is really kind of the, the clearinghouse email for prayer concerns counseling needs, uh, a more perhaps confidential request that you want to mention directly to a pastor or to a deacon, and that email address is prayer at covenant-mail.com, prayer at covenant-mail.com. And if you can just send us your name, your physical address, let us know that this is your first time joining us. We'd love to reach out to you, send you a little something in the mail just as a thank you uh, for being a part of our worship service today. God bless you, and I hope that you come away from this experience together encouraged uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can like us if you happen to be watching us on the Facebook platform. Uh, if you want to share this with perhaps if you have a, a neighbor or a friend that you think may need this experience in times like these. We invite you, encourage you, in fact, to like and share uh, this live feed to others, uh, wherever you are, to wherever they are, all the way back to where we are, right here in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. You know, just 36 hours ago, here in West Virginia, our governor laid down some new directives, and they, believe it or not, had a rather immediate impact even on us as a church, uh, specifically regarding how many people really should be on this stage at once. And so I want to say a very deep thank you to Pastor Ken Orioli, uh, who is behind me and to my left. Uh, you don't see him very often. Uh, he works more behind the scenes. I hope he's not too embarrassed that I called him by name. Uh, but he did a marvelous job over those last 36 hours. He and Ryan Allen, our producer, and their respective teams in just some Gumby-like flexibility to make sure that we could bring you this worship experience, but do so in a way that honors the directives that have been given us by our leaders so that we can not only honor that and set a good example for our community, but protect each other in the midst of this crisis. And I just want to express my thanks to him and to Ryan and to, and to all, I mean, this huge crowd of like four people who are here with me today uh, for all of the hard work that they've done. And Ryan himself, who's somehow miraculously able to direct all of this from his home today. So if you could put a thumbs up in the thread, just say thank you to these men and women for what they do. I know this pastor is very, very grateful. It's the reason that we get to gather today. Uh, in the midst of everything that surrounds us. I want to begin our time together by reading from a passage of Scripture that really touched my wife Amy's heart earlier this week. If you watched us on the live video on Wednesday during our 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. prayer time, uh, you heard us referencing this passage often. Uh, it spoke to her. Her testimony of how it spoke to her spoke to me. And my prayer is that as, be as we begin this time of worship, it will speak to you. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. 
You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we begin our time together. Lord, thank you so much that no matter how we feel, whether it is a moment like this that has all of us a bit unnerved and uncertain, or even if it was a moment like perhaps back in December or January when we felt more secure, one fact is constant and always remains. If we dwell in safety, it is only because of you. And so, Father, may we be centered around that reality. And as a result of that, in these next few moments, may we give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. And may that rightful glorification of your great name bring us a greater comfort and a greater peace that will carry us in perseverance through this next week. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word around, uh, if you don't, that's fine. We're going to put the verses up on the screen, but we're in Galatians chapter 4, and that's where we're going to continue our study of the grace-driven life while you're finding the Scriptures and preparing uh, to hear God's Word. I do want to bring up just a couple of things from the first part of our message together. If you have a need, if there's anything we can help with, if you need to pray with someone, if you need somebody to reach out and talk or counsel with you, or maybe you just need somebody to listen. We have a great team of folks here that are ready and anxious to receive your message. And that message can be sent to prayer at covenant-mail.com. So at any point during this message, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's Word, to reach out to us with any needs that you have. And I pray that you're encouraged by today's worship service. Tomorrow begins what is historically known as Passion Week. Well, I guess in some sense you could say today, Palm Sunday, begins that. Now, Easter, contrary to some of the rumors you may have heard, is not canceled. But what has changed is that like so many generations of our brothers and sisters who've had unexpected things from plagues to persecutions hit them over the last 2,000 years, we're just going to have to get creative and find some new ways to celebrate uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to give you a little bit of a preview as to what's coming before I get into the message today. Uh, starting on Wednesday, Amy and I will again be live on Facebook at 1 p.m. for a time of weekly prayer. Uh, and beginning tomorrow morning, we actually want to begin, for those of you who are able, whose health will allow, we want to begin a week of fasting and prayer, both for our nation to be healed from everything that's going on, and also for those of us who are part of the family of God to draw closer to the resurrected Christ as we get closer chronologically to Resurrection Sunday. 
So that will begin tomorrow, and I invite any and all of you who are able and willing to join us in that week of fasting and prayer. Friday night at 6 p.m., I will be live on Facebook uh, at 6 p.m. We're going to do a brief Good Friday service together. I'll be doing that from my home, and then on Easter Sunday morning, we're actually going to revert to two services just for Easter. The first will be at 9 a.m., and it'll be right here online, so any of our five online channels, you can catch us at 9 a.m. for an Easter uh, celebration and an Easter message, and then at 11, we're going to actually have a service here on campus. You say, how in the world can we do that and still be safe? Because if any, if any of you are old enough like me to remember drive-in movies, that's what we're doing. Our South parking lot, which is our largest available space, we're going to park cars, and the, the worship team and myself will be under the concourse entrance. If it happens to be raining a little bit or weather permitting, we'll probably be out just a little bit further than that. There will be speakers out there, but we also are going to have a dedicated FM frequency. So again, just like the drive-in movies, you can turn us on, hear the announcements before the service. We're going to have a book of menus ready for you for local restaurants in town who are still doing takeout service. So you can get an Easter meal for your family, support local businesses, worship the Lord Jesus. We can all stay safe. We can get a chance to see each other. And I got to tell you, in the midst of everything that's going on, I really have missed you guys. And I so look forward to getting together with you. More details on what all of this is going to involve are coming. So watch your email inbox. Follow us on social media to make sure that you're staying uh, on top of those details. We have to be decent and in order uh, in the way that we do this to protect each other, to make sure that the service goes well. I do want to warn you, we've had a lot of response to this. And even though we got a lot of spaces in that parking lot, they're probably going to fill up quickly. So if service starts at 11, I'd get here at 10, 15, 10, 30 if I were you. So just make sure that you're here early. And uh, we're just going to look forward. It's going to be a brief, no longer than about a 45-minute service. And I look forward to culminating this coming Passion Week with you by worshiping the resurrected Lord Jesus. Well, we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 31 this morning. One of the strange things about our culture that I've found, at least I think it's strange, is nursery rhymes. Uh, they're sort of ironic to me, and there's a wicked irony to some nursery rhymes. For example, you, you hear some of these words and you learn some of these things when you're a small child. Like I, it, it, as young as I can remember, I remember learning the words to ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. I remember seeing people play games as they would clasp hands and run around in a circle while they sang that together. Now, I didn't know what any of that meant, but I learned the words. And then as a late teen in my early college years, I learned what those words actually meant. And I was horrified by them. In the case of Ring Around the Rosie, it referred to the, a period known as the, the Black Plague. Uh, and the way people would die from this plague. Now, you, you think of something like that and you go, wow, that's awful. Why did I ever memorize something like that? And then you do your best to put it out of your mind. But then a few years later, you have children. And what do you do? You teach this to your kids. Sometimes I wonder what's really wrong with us uh, when we do things like that. And then there's some nursery rhymes, poems that you just have fun with your kids with. They're just funny. There's one in particular that all three of my children, they're, they're a little old for this now, but 
when they were younger and we used to do prayer together at bedside, we'd be silly and laughing and Amy's probably rolling her eyes from home right now because she'd gotten them all settled down and I would go up the steps and try to, you know, have prayer with them. But before they were done, it would be another hour and a half before they went to bed because I got them all jacked up. And one of the ways that I would do that was by this silly little nursery rhyme that started like this. You may have heard it. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. You think, that's just awful, isn't it? That's like a horrible thing. By the end of this nursery rhyme, we learned that this woman had swallowed a spider to catch the fly. She swallowed a bird to catch the spider. She swallowed a cat to catch the bird, swallowed the dog to catch the cat. Then this strange little interlude where she swallows a cow to catch the dog. I didn't know cows ate dogs, but at any rate. And then she finally caught the cow by swallowing a horse. You think to yourself, that's kind of sick. It's also kind of funny, which is why my wife had a hard time getting my kids to go to sleep after we would recite that silly nursery rhyme with each other. Well, Jesus often used silly rhymes like that when he was trying to make fun of the very kind of religion that we discover is really interrupting the life of the faith of the people at Galatia. He, he gave a similar example once through a pun. He was speaking to a people who believed they knew the content of the scriptures very well, but they were not honoring with their lives the spirit of those same scriptures. They presumed to be mighty biblical scholars. They were called in this day the Pharisees, and they gave dutiful observance to the law. Jesus went so far as to tell them, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. He says, when you come to tithing, you don't just give 10% of your check. You tithe out of your spice rack. That, it takes a freakish level of OCD to do something like that. You want to make sure that you're doing everything you're supposed to do, but at the same time, you neglect the stuff that actually demonstrates both love of God and love of neighbor. And he summarizes this approach in Matthew 23, 23. He says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. That's a little bigger than a horse, isn't it? You take your colander in the kitchen, that thing that's supposed to separate the solids from all of the liquid, and the holes in that thing are so small you could catch a gnat in it. That's how precise you think you are theologically, but at the same time you're doing this and holding this standard up to everybody else, you're simultaneously trying to shove an entire camel down your throat. So when it comes to, to picking apart Scripture, they could talk all day long about the finer points of theology, but when it came to living the life those scriptures commended, they, they didn't do a very good job. Now, the problem with that particular group of people in Jesus' time is that practice and that hypocrisy and duplicity really didn't stop with them. It continued through their followers. And a few decades later, there's a group named the Judaizers who are doing the same thing to these young Christians at Galatia. We've been in a series that began in mid-January called The Grace-Driven Life, moving verse by verse through this letter to the church at Galatia. And up until this point, the focus has largely been individual. How do I live a life driven by grace? How do I, how do I resist religion on the one hand that makes me either very proud and under the condemnation of God as a result, or feel always defeated because I realize I can never live up to this, how do I, on the other hand, avoid rebellion? How do I avoid that school of thought that says the grace of God means I can live however I want when the grace of God, actually the purpose of it is to cleanse me of my sin, save me from it, liberate me from it? 
How can I escape the traps of both legalism and license? That's what we've been looking at for three and a half chapters. But here's the thing, and this is, this is going to be where verse 21, verses 21 to 31 are going to call our attention today. Our faith is not an individual faith. It's practiced in community. And that's proven even now. I'm preaching to an empty building. But I'm preaching to hundreds of people right now who are in homes all over the place. It's because you recognize faith doesn't happen on its own, does it? And any way we can get it, even in a case like this, we're going to try to get it. Faith is practiced in community. And that community, if you'll notice the New Testament, it's most frequently described as family, isn't it? And in this case, in the case of family, siblings aren't always going to get along, are they? We're just not. And when we have conflict in the family, we're going to have to try to figure out how to live together, and how to love each other in Christ. Now, here's the rub in this section of Galatians. Paul is reminding us that what's transpiring in this church at this moment is not just a sibling rivalry. The children who have been set free, that's how he defines the church at Galatia, have now come under the influence of the children of the house down the street. And these children are the children of spiritual slaves. And that theme is going to reach a very heated conclusion in verse 30. Paul says, of those children of slavery, you, Church of Galatia, cast them out. Now you may be thinking, well that sounds kind of mean. I thought Christians were supposed to love everybody. I thought Christians were supposed to accept everybody. Well, you have to understand that there's some nuance here. And there's some difference in the way that Paul addresses various audiences. And, and really, if you think about it, it's no different than the, the way we face different situations of conflict in our own lives. There have been times when my children have fought with each other. I know that's hard to believe. The preacher's kids would get into a fight, that they wouldn't get along with each other. There have been times, though, where even though they're upstairs in a rather large home, we can hear them and the more we hear them, the more Amy and I get aggravated by it, and they fight, and then the volume begins to go up. And I don't know about your household, but in my household, I've gotten to the extent on a few occasions that I've suggested to Amy that maybe our three children need to get their own place. Maybe they need to move out. On one occasion or two, I've, I got so exasperated, I, looked at, I remember looking at her one night, and I said, you know what, baby, the, the mortgage is paid up two months in advance, that gives them some time to make plans. Let's you and me move out. Let's just let them have the house. You ever felt like that with your children? Here's the thing, though. We, we would never do that, would we? You know why? Because we're family. Because we're family. But it's different, is it not, if someone from another family comes into your home and begins to disrupt things. You're going to treat that differently, will you not, than you will if it's happening within your family. Some of you may have had that experience. Your kid was negatively influenced by someone at their school or someone on their sports team. You have a teen who brings home a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a significant other whose influence is destructive, and you start to notice that destruction is not just on their significant other. It started to influence your child, and, and as a result, the child's still living with you. It's starting to influence the, the rest of your household. It doesn't just affect them. It affects the whole family. And leaders of churches have to be able to distinguish between those kinds of scenarios. During the Reformation, Martin Luther put it this way when it comes to settling conflict. He said, with the weak sheep, you cannot be too gentle. 
with the wolves, you cannot be too harsh. That takes discernment, doesn't it? And what Paul is saying here is this, basically. The bad kids have come into our neighborhood. And you, Church of Galatia, you have forgotten which family you belong to. And so as we conclude chapter 4 today, he's reminding them who they are, and the overall point becomes clear to us. What happens in my life matters. Whether I give myself to rebellion on the one hand or religion on the other, or whether I will live in the freedom and the liberation that God's grace provides for me, that matters. But here's the other thing. What happens in my faith community also matters because what happens in my life affects what happens in your life. What happens in our lives affects the lives of others in this family. And spiritually abusive environments can emanate from high control relationships and situations. We talked about this a little, that a little bit like this, just this past week. And so this part of the text is, is not just about how I as an individual live in freedom. It's about how the church and community can remain there and help all of us to remain there. How do I keep myself from undue sinful influence and live as the children of freedom? Well, together, we've got to do three things that are unpacked for us in this passage. The first thing we have to do is to continue to trust in divine initiative. Trust in the same power of God that brought you to Jesus. Paul begins in verse 21 saying the following, Tell me, you, do, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, this is a little thick, and there's a lot of historical background that we really need to unpack and explain in order for us in the 20 centuries later to kind of get at what Paul's talking about here. Now, when I was in college, I had a philosophy professor, Walter Johnson, who is actually, among other things, a dear friend and brother to this day, but he's also the reason that I teach philosophy today. And one of the more valuable lessons I ever learned from Dr. Johnson was that ideas, contrary to what we may think about the, the discipline of philosophy, they don't stay in the ivory tower. Eventually they trickle down, they make their way to Main Street, they make their way like feet hitting a pavement, they have application, and because they have application, every single idea has a consequence. And sometimes those consequences are long-term consequences. And so for that reason, when a student in his class would say something that was logically problematic, he'd have a little mischievous grin on his face. And I could remember he would always look at the student in front of all the other students and say, are you absolutely certain you want to continue pursuit of this line of reasoning? Now that was his friendly fire way of saying to the student, listen, I'm going to give you one more chance before I tear you apart in front of all these people to correct yourself. He wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. He wasn't trying to be an adversary. What he was seeking to do in the relative safety of a classroom was to help a student see that idea has really bad consequences. It's going to take you to a really bad place. And in effect, that's what Paul is doing here. It's why he asks of the Judaizers in verse 21. He says, you insist that the Galatians need to emulate you. They need to be like you rather than me. They need to emulate. They need to obey the law. Are you sure that you truly understand the law that you think you're adhering to? Are you certain that you obey it the way you think 
you do. And then he began to describe the history into which that law was given. Now, we've seen this before in Galatians. That law doesn't just come down out of the sky. It comes within a particular historical context that doesn't begin with Moses. It begins with Abraham. So once again, now Paul's going to take us back to Abraham, and what we're about to see in these verses is a summary of Galatians 16, 17, and 18. So let me give you the Notes version of that, and then we'll know how to apply this. Abraham, the Bible says, had two sons. He actually had eight. His wife Keturah bore him six. We see that in Genesis 25. But the covenantal focus, the spiritual focus, if you will, of the entire body of the Hebrew Scriptures focuses on the first two, Ishmael and then Isaac. And the circumstances surrounding the birth of these two boys could not have been more different, nor could they have been more opposed to each other. One of those boys came by promise. That's what Scripture says here. God said to Abraham, you will have a son. Now, here's the issue. When God spoke those words, Abraham was 75 years old, and his wife Sarah was 65. Okay? So if they've been living in our century... They, Abraham's been retired for 10 years. Sarah's just now become Medicare eligible. I don't even know. Does Medicare have pregnancy benefits? I don't even know. But that's where they are right now. And, and furthermore, it's going to be another quarter century before this promise comes to be, which means that Abraham, by the time this promise of God is fulfilled, is 100 years old and his wife is 90 it's hard to fathom, isn't it, being a 90-year-old woman shopping at Baby Gap and the children's place, and it's not for your granddaughter. You're doing this for a kid that you're going to be giving birth to in a few months. That's, that's really culturally awkward, but even more so than the cultural awkwardness, this is a biological impossibility, which is why it takes faith. It takes faith in God's initiative to believe that this promise is coming. And so that one was given by promise, but the other one comes by, Paul says here, flesh. Abraham had a servant. Her name was Hagar. And Sarah said, it doesn't look like God's coming through on his promise. I'm barren. I'm unable to bear you any children, even when I was of age. I'm way past that age now. We need to Provide some help if the Lord is going to fulfill his promise. Why don't you go sleep with my servant Hagar and have a son with her? And of course, Abraham apparently readily agrees. He thinks this is a wonderful idea. This would be a really awkward message at Mother's Day, wouldn't it? The result is the birth of Ishmael. And it should surprise no one that the result of that sinful logic and subsequent sinful behavior would be a lot of conflict, a lot of jacked-up family dynamics. And what Paul is telling us here is that story, that background, it represents a larger picture. In verse 24, when he calls it an allegory, he's not telling us that this didn't really happen in history. He's saying that that micro-history actually calls it macro-history. And that history teaches us a valuable lesson about the grace of God. Abraham believed the promise, but then... Much like the Galatians who began in faith, began in grace, he sought to add his own effort to the promise, and the result is sin compounded upon more sin, family conflict and dysfunction, centuries of violence and warfare between two nations who emerged from these two boys, and, and from his one decision to try to provide on his own the thing that only God could provide for him. Ideas have consequences. That's Paul's point here. In fact, at some point, 
this pandemic thing, we're going to see it in the rearview mirror. I know it doesn't seem like it now, but I promise you it's coming. And, and when you get to make your first trip back to the airport, something is not going to have changed. You're going to be happy to be at the airport because you're just going to be happy to be anywhere other than your home. But there's going to come a time. You're going to get your ticket. You're going to go, to, to go through security, and you're going to look up, and you're going to see all those TSA boys and girls. And what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to take your shoes off, aren't you? Yeah. When that happens, think about this story because that's where that experience originated. Here's the point. Christian faith is not a faith of our own at any point. And when we begin to make it a faith of our own effort, the consequences are absolutely disastrous. Christian faith is continual trust in divine initiative. Well, what level of trust does that take? It takes the same level of trust as is needed by a 100-year-old man who is holding the hand of his 90-year-old pregnant wife in the delivery room. That's the level of faith that it takes. But that's the level of faith that can produce a 90-year-old pregnant woman. I've been thinking about this lately. If a virus that we cannot see, except with a microscope, can wreak the kind of havoc that it's wreaked just in a few weeks, in the most powerful nation that's ever existed in the history of the world, if it can have the effect that it's had on the bodies and the health of so many of us, on our national economy, on the psyches of nearly all of us, if all of that can happen through a virus that outside of a microscope I cannot see, what can be accomplished with mustard seed-sized faith that I can see that Jesus spoke about? That's what Abraham, at least initially, was activating in his life. We live daily knowing that God alone and God's initiative alone is what saves us and keeps us. I tell you, and if, it's, if we can trust God for our eternal souls to get us to heaven, we can trust him in this moment as well. Trust in divine initiative. That's the first thing we have to do. And then after we put our trust in that, we live in that divine Power. Paul will continue in verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, if you're 20 centuries removed from a text, or maybe you're new to the Christian faith, Bible study just really hasn't been your forte up until this point. Those first words, you just kind of tempted to look away. Stay with me, all right? I know this is involved, but there's a lot of important stuff here. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul's continuing to unfold the allegory that comes out of this microcosm of history. And he's saying, when you think of Hagar and Ishmael, I want you to think of the effort of man. I want you to think of the efforts that the Judaizers are telling you are necessary for your salvation. And then I want you to think of a temporary city, Jerusalem, a city that a century from the moment he pens these letters will not exist anymore, at least not in the form that, that these people know it to exist. And he says, that's what the flesh can produce. And that is all that your works and effort will ever produce 
When you think of the free woman, by contrast, Sarah and her son Isaac, think of the promise of God and of faith. And if you want to preserve that, which you started in, this is the message I brought you. When in sickness, I ended up at your front door. We saw that described for us last week. And they received him as a messenger of God. They received the gospel that he preached. They began with that very message of freedom and grace. You want to preserve that? There's another word you need to hear. And this is where he quotes Isaiah 54 in verse 27. These are words, by the way, originally written to a generation of Hebrew people who were going to be living as exiles. Life was going to get radically interrupted, and they were going to have to spend an extended period of time in a way that they never thought they'd ever have to face. That may sound familiar to some of you. This is the word of the Lord to that generation. It may have something to say to us. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. You know what he's saying to those people whose life has been radically interrupted? There's a period of blessing that's coming if you'll just wait. What an amazing word of hope that is to every subsequent generation. There is a blessing that is coming in which Israel, in this context, is going to move from barrenness of slavery to the fruitfulness. She's going to move from slavery to freedom. This comes as the result of one thing, God's unilateral intervention on your behalf. And the end will be a community of God's people who can only be gathered supernaturally. Supernaturally. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This has been the promise of God time after time throughout history to his people. And as we sit where we thought we'd never sit on this day, it is still the promise of God, and just like he has kept it every other time, he is going to keep it this time. Blessing is coming. Just wait. Just trust. And having said that, now comes the indictment on the Judaizers, these advocates of law-keeping that have invaded Galatia, coerced the church into believing you've got to be circumcised, you have to observe dietary restrictions, you have to do this, you have to do that. All of this is necessary if you're going to truly follow Jesus. But they're, they're basing their argument on this very narrow version of history. It's a version that oversimplifies things. It says Abraham was circumcised. Abraham, the, the law emanated genealogically from Abraham's people. Therefore, the law is required to be a son of Abraham. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying that that view of history is not just wrong and twisted, it's way oversimplified. I don't know where you're watching from this morning. Most of you, I would imagine, are part of the covenant family and you're watching from somewhere here in the region. But if you're watching from anywhere around the world, you may not realize that about five, a five-minute drive from where I stand is the site of the bloodiest single-day battle in the entire American Civil War. Right across the Potomac River over here, in Maryland, surrounding a body of water called Antietam Creek. Bloodiest day of the Civil War. So as you can imagine, living in an area like this, we have a lot of armchair historians. We have a lot of conversation, not just around that battle, but around the war as a whole. And, and one of the things, a lot, a lot of debate about the American Civil War. And sometimes, and you probably experience this, no matter where you live, if you're familiar with that period of American history, you, you know that, that 
there are multiple sides to that history, and, and all of those sides have a tendency to oversimplify things. Right? One side says, for example, it was all about slavery. Well, that's not technically true. There were a lot of issues at stake. And to not acknowledge that is to be misled by an oversimplified view of that period of history that's going to have consequences. But here's the other side of that. It was never about less than slavery. In fact, the central issue of the American Civil War over time became about those who believed and, and wanted to stay separated from the rest of the nation because they believed that a person should have the right to own another human being. You can't escape that. And so regardless of which side you take, as you look at that history, if you twist the history to fit an agenda, you get yourself in trouble, don't you? And so Paul is seeing that happen among the Galatian church, and he is untying all of those historical knots. And he's basically saying to the church, Abraham's works that the, that the Judaizers keep trying to convince you must be your works those were according to the flesh. That's not what got him his relationship with God. That's what got Ishmael. That's what got Sinai, the old covenant. That, that's led to the present Jerusalem that's not even going to be here 50 years from the moment that I write this letter. And so it, you don't do that. The, the answer is to understand not the, the present Jerusalem, but the fact that there is, Paul describes a heavenly Jerusalem here. Both the Testaments of our Bible refer to it repeatedly as Zion. And that city comes to all of us, Jew and Gentile, and it comes to us through a new covenant. But this new covenant is not so new, is it? In fact, it's based on exactly the same promise that produced Isaac. Here's Paul's big point here. It is not the biological works of Abraham and Hagar or Abraham and Sarah that produced Isaac. It was the power of God that delivered on that promise and every other promise that came afterwards. And listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. What was true for a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife is true for anybody watching me right now who is battling addiction or having marital problems or struggling with sin or trapped in a quarantine about to go outside your mind. If you live under the law in the middle of any of that, you're going to be living as that slave woman who's been kicked out of a dysfunctional home. Here's the great news of the gospel according to Paul to this church. Nobody watching me has to live that way. Nobody in the world has to live that way. God calls you and me to live supernatural lives within the confines of a supernatural community. And that only happens when we commit to live in divine power. So my, my trust is what pulls the trigger on that, and then my trust also allows me to step into that kind of life so that I am no longer having to put my own effort forward. I am moving in divine grace. Next time you, you go to the airport and get on one of those people movers, think about that. Then it, then it, make, it makes me feel good to be a guy that weighs pounds, to be able to step on that thing at Dulles and be able to walk. And I look over here and here's a guy who looks like he could be a marathon runner and I'm moving faster than him. Uh, isn't it great that there are things like that that can get up under your feet and empower you to move at a speed that you couldn't move by yourself? That's the gospel of grace. And it comes to you and it comes to me by divine power. Here's the final thing we learn. 
preserve divine freedom. Verse 28, Paul continues, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is Paul's big moment. The bad kids from the neighborhood have come into your house. You're not part of that family. You're part of your family. So put away not just the influences that they've brought into your home. Put away the people that have brought that influence, that controlling, legalistic, oppressive influence into your life. Boyfriend, girlfriend, any other kind of dysfunctional, controlling relationship such as the one that we described last week where they want to cordon you off and, and control the space that's just for you and them. And they want to do that for their own benefit. Paul says that's what's happening in these verses. He says the reason it's happening is because they're not part of your family. They're part of another family who's trying to leech onto you. And there's only one solution to this. Cast them out. And the example he gives as to why this has to be done takes us back to Genesis chapter 21. Sin has caused dysfunction at Galatia. That dysfunction has caused conflict, and it bubbles up here when, in, in Genesis 21, Ishmael is laughing at Isaac, and Sarah finally says to Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael have to go. Now, I want to be careful here, because there's a lot of moral complexity around that narrative in Genesis 21. And Genesis 21, furthermore, has to be balanced with Genesis 16, where we see that Ishmael and Hagar are not left out of the blessing of God. They're not left out of the blessing of the promise. But it, so it's not as simple as just Sarah was the good girl who kicked out Hagar, the bad girl. You say, well, then why does Paul describe it in that way? Because this is the way the Judaizers would have seen it. And so he tells the story in this way to get to the big idea. Just as Ishmael abused Isaac, the Judaizers are abusing Galatia. So he's doing a couple of things here. Number one, he's announcing grave insult. Remember at the outset of the series, I said, this is a really angry letter. This is one of the more intense, vitriolic parts of the letter because essentially he's saying to the Judaizers, you pride yourself as being sons of Abraham, but if you'll take that one generation further, you big boys are a lot more like Ishmael than you are like Isaac. They would not have liked that at all. And he's saying, just as Ishmael abused Isaac, the Judaizers are abusing the Galatians. You, church, are allowing yourselves to be victimized by a group of legalists who are enslaving you. In the spiritual realm, the battle going on around us right now is far more serious than what happened between Isaac and Ishmael. This is an impossible situation. There will never be reconciliation between works and grace precisely because there can never be reconciliation between freedom and slavery. And so Paul says, invoking the voice of Sarah in that narrative, cast out the slave woman and her son. Do to the Judaizers what Sarah did to Hagar because the situation is that serious. 
Some of you understand that. You've got a loved one who's in a dysfunctional, controlling, law-based kind of relationship. And you're trying to wrench them free from that. And it takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of patience. And it takes a lot of love. I had a really bad breakup during my freshman year in college. And it, it really, it, it, it broke my heart. It bothered me. And there was this woman in my church. Her name was Elizabeth Suddeth. Godly, godly, sweet woman who's been with Jesus for probably about 10 years now. And Mrs. Suddeth walked up to me. And, and I'm going to tell you, every time Mrs. Suddeth spoke, I listened. And not just because she was my elder. Not just because I looked at her like the grandmother that I didn't have. Because I lost most all my grandparents by the time I was 14 years old. But I also looked at her in that way because every year on my birthday, she made me a homemade, I mean from scratch, no Duncan Hines, pound cake, chocolate pound cake with chocolate homemade icing. That woman was a blessing. I'm going to get to heaven, and I don't know if God allows us to do things like that up there, but if he does, I'm going to ask Miss Seth for another pound cake. It was amazing. But in that moment, she walked up to me, and she said, Honey, Please don't be angry with me, but I've been praying for that relationship to end for a long time. She was no good for you. That's the kind of thing Paul is saying to the church at Galatia. These controlling people are no good for you. Like a parent to a teen child, this relationship is bad for you. You need to end it knowing that our relationship is always going to be there no matter what. And here's, again, this takes us back to the ultimate reason why. They're not part of your family, and you're not part of their family. You, by the gospel of Christ, are children of freedom. Because of Jesus alone, God is your father. No matter who your earthly father is, there is hope for you, hope for your family, hope for your church community, and there is an eternal inheritance waiting for you. You have everything you need. Don't allow others to come in and steal it. Preserve the freedom that God has given you in grace. Does that mean we don't reach out to anybody and everybody? with the offer of God's grace. No, that's not what that means at all. We reach out to everybody with the gospel of God's grace. What it does mean is that we're called as the body together to resist being unduly influenced by any person or group of people who would sleep, seek to bring us back into spiritual slavery. So let me ask you three questions in conclusion. The first one is this. What are you enslaved to? Do you have enough of a memory that you remembered what it was like to learn to tie your shoes? I don't mean after you learned to tie your shoe. I mean that, that, that series of weeks or months, or for some of us who have brick mason fingers, years maybe, that it took you to learn how to tie your shoes. You remember what that was like? You try to do it, what do you end up with? A knot. You try to get the knot undone, and what happens? Usually, you tie it tighter. And then you compound it with another knot. Uh, that, that's that's kind of what enslavement is like. What is it that you're trying to do? Because here's the thing. I couldn't get those knot un, knots untied at that age until I went to my mother and said, i got to have some help. And then she, because number one, she was an adult. Number two, she'd been tying her shoes a long time before I was tying my shoes. And number three, she had really long fingernails. 
She had the ability and the power and the initiative to get in there and to get those knots untied in a way that I never could. That, that really, I think, is the picture that, that Paul is drawing for us here of enslavement. What is it you've been trying to do on your own? And the knots just keep getting tighter. And they keep getting compounded. The answer is to trust in the same divine initiative and power that produced an Isaac out of the womb of a 90-year-old woman. And eventually, through the line of Isaac, brought you and me a savior who would bear our sins on the cross and as we will celebrate in just seven days from now raise bodily from the dead to guarantee us the truth of what he said when he said because i live you will live also so what are you enslaved to number two who in your life is trying to lead you away from the gospel you might need to cast someone out not because you're mean but because you're being spiritually controlled and abused. Who do you need possibly to separate from? But here's the thing. You're not meant to live this life alone, so here's the third question. Who do you know that loves you and wants good for you the same way Paul loved and wanted good for the Galatians? God wants his children together. You need to go to that community. This, listen, this community loves you, desires the best for you, wants to see you free from any undue controlling influence, you can do that in this community. But the bottom line of this text is God wants his children together, he wants us in community, and he wants us free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your people. Thank you that we are allowed through uh, this medium through in, in the 21st century and at this time to still be able to gather together. And Lord, I pray that you would protect them from this thing that is transpiring around us. Lord, I pray more than that, that you would protect them spiritually. And I pray that today there will be those who would reach out and that they would find a Paul who loves them who longs to see them live free and liberated. And Father, I pray that you get glory from our response to your word today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayer connection is right there on your screen. Prayer at covenant-mail.com If you need to respond to this message in any way. You know, maybe your entire life has been spent in spiritual slavery. I've spent a lot of time personally in my office and in other locales, across a table, across my desk, from someone who's enslaved to a religion that left them feeling oppressed, enslaved to people who led them around like cult leaders lead those that they mean to control. That kind of thing, unfortunately, is not uncommon in our day. Maybe you're looking for freedom. Let me promise you this. That freedom is provided for you only in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so there in the privacy of your own soul, even if you're surrounded in your living room or bedroom by, some, by other people, in the privacy of your own heart, you could call out to him now and say, Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner who is separated from you through your word you have revealed to me today that I can't work my way to you. And so I repent, which means I turn away from my self-effort 
And I'm also at this point going to turn away from those who tried to convince me that my effort can accomplish anything. And I want to give my life to you. See, the Bible tells us that we are born in sin, separated from the love and the mercy of God because of our sin. But that because of Jesus Christ, having come into this world, lived in absolute perfection, the life that you and I were supposed to live, and then having given his life on the cross, bearing the wrath of God and taking upon himself the penalty for our sins, and then being raised from the dead so that we can walk in a resurrected, liberated newness of life. You can have eternal life, and you can have it today. And so if you want to reach out and believe in Jesus, please reach out to us through that email line. We'll be getting back to you as early as this afternoon if we need to. And we are going to be praying for you. We're going to take a few moments now as well and, and just take some time for our tithes and offerings. I want to thank those of you who are part of the Covenant family who have continued to give faithfully. I am very, very grateful for that. So many of your fellow Covenant family members have already been hit financially and in terms of their health and in other ways by this pandemic. And through your generous giving, you've been able to help them and we, we're just so thankful to be able to be a family that's nimble enough and to have people who are generous enough that, that we can now turn so many of those resources that we thought were going to be funding programs and all kinds of things that don't even exist right now into helping our community. And there is more to come. As we move toward what those who are in the know are telling us will be the peak of this pandemic, which is the very definition of the time when this crisis is going to get as bad as it's possibly going to get. When the death rate as well as the rate of infection and sickness fills up hospital beds all around our area. After that point, when things start to get better, as we look forward to the latter, we want to be prepared for the former. And everything from our facility to our staff, every resource we have is not only actively doing that now, but we're standing ready for when those greater needs from our community are called upon. And I just want to thank those of you who continue to give generously because it is those gifts by God's grace that have allowed us to be in that position. I want to pray God's richest blessings over all of you right now. If you want to send this the old-fashioned way, you can write a check, put it in the, in the, the mail to P.O. Box 1674, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, 25443. Or you can go to give2covenant.com and just give, just as my family and I did yesterday, online. And God bless you as we worship him through sharing our resources together. Father in heaven, bless those who give and bless the gifts. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of being able to serve. Lord, we would not have wished for this, but we are thankful that you use the body of Christ at Covenant to bless not just the community of Shepherdstown, but this entire tri-state region. And so, Lord, as we continue to serve, Make us faithful. Make us vigilant. And Father, may you protect us so that we might have the health and what we need to be who you have called us to be, the very hands and the feet of Jesus. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor David Lyle, our executive pastor, is going to come in just a moment after that. You don't want to miss the coming announcements about this coming week. And then we'll be dismissed. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for watching us today.
at uh, Covenant Church in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. It's been a joy to share this online worship experience with you. We are doing our absolute best to stay connected to you, and uh, we're reaching out. Our elders and deacons daily are calling people in the congregation, checking in on your well-being, and praying with you, and we will continue to do that. I'd like to also mention the Covenant Children's Ministry, Covenant Kids with Lisa, sending items in the mail for you to work with your children and to stay connected with you online. Also, Covenant Youth, Pastor Joe, is online every day at 12 o'clock noon. And Wednesday evening at 6.30, Covenant Youth is live. Make sure that all you teens are checking out Pastor Joe. Also, our Covenant small groups continue to meet online via the Zoom meetings, and many of your small group leaders are be available to reach out to help you get connected to you. Pastor Joel has already mentioned some details about the upcoming Holy Week schedule. Uh, there was a mailer that went out to everyone on Friday with all the information for you. And there has been information on Facebook. Please keep checking on that. But just a reminder of some of them. Wednesday at 1 o'clock, Pastor Joel and Amy will have a prayer time from their home. Friday, Good Friday, Pastor Joel will be sharing the Word of God from his home at 6 o'clock p.m. And then next Sunday, we will have two worship experiences. The first one is online at 9 o'clock a.m. Look for that. And then our drive in worship in the south parking lot. We look forward to the many people that plan on coming and enjoy the wonderful celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Also this Wednesday, we will have our food pantry from the hours of 1 to 5, and you can look for information online or on Facebook for that. And we thank you for keeping in touch with us. And the Facebook uh, post will be going out tomorrow morning for the prayer and fasting, the daily uh, items in which to pray for, and we thank you for doing that as well. I'd like to share with you the words, uh, the, the words of Numbers, chapter 6. It is our prayer that may the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day as you love and serve the Lord. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area, and looking for a church home. I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.